Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. And welcome to We Have Ways Family Stories, our weekly show in which you, the listeners, tell us what happened to your family members during the Second World War. These stories range from daring raids behind enemy lines to evacuee tales of country life. Today's selection sees us travel from Nagasaki as the atom bomb fell to a London hospital's labour ward during an air raid. We start off this week's episode with John Nye, who writes, Hi James and Al, as you and many other listeners have frequently noted, a lot of the more traumatic family stories are never told or only come out towards the end of a life. My uncle Frank is one such case, revealing something remarkable about himself late in life. Strictly speaking, Uncle Frank was not my uncle. As a young man taking up an engineering post with Ferranti and in need of digs, he became a lodger at my great-aunt Winifred's farmhouse. He never left and spent the rest of his life there, effectively becoming a member of the family, and was much loved. As a young boy, visiting Auntie Wynne's farm was always exciting, and I particularly looked forward to seeing Uncle Frank. He would usually be in his room, sat in his big leather upholstered swivel chair, which he would spin round to greet me, like an avuncular Bond villain. I would sit on the arm of the chair and we would talk and watch TV together or he would show me his cine movies of air shows he'd been to. One thing puzzled me though. I was a fussy eater, often refusing or leaving various items of food. At mealtimes, my normally cheerful and friendly Uncle Frank would look annoyed and mutter darkly about my behaviour in a way that was different from the usual exasperation of other adults. At one particular Sunday lunch, I was up to my usual tricks when Uncle Frank went a step further and started lecturing me on how I shouldn't be allowed to leave food. Leave the boy alone, Frank, admonished Auntie Wynne. He needs to be told, he replied, and turned to me. If you'd been in the Japanese camps like me, you wouldn't be leaving anything. You'd realise the value of food. In the camps, we'd eat anything, never mind how bad it was. They kept us starving. We didn't leave a single grain of rice. This seemed to release something in him and Uncle Frank then proceeded to tell us his story. I noticed that the usually talkative adults round the table remained absolutely silent all the way through. I found out later that although they knew Frank had been a prisoner, he had never spoken in any detail about it. Everyone felt the significance of what was unfolding. Frank told us how his ship had been sunk and he was captured. He told us how he went through a series of camps and ended up on the Japanese mainland. He finished by saying that at the end of the war he was in a labour camp in Nagasaki. My heart skipped a beat. Although only ten, I knew the significance of that city. Both my parents remembered the war, so my affliction had taken hold at a very young age. I crassly blurted out the question everyone round the table was thinking but dared not ask. Were you there when the bomb dropped? Oh yes, he replied. 
but we didn't really notice it. Uncle Frank had been a starving POW. This fact was shocking. He had been present at an epic historical event. This twist was surprising. Uncle Frank had an atom bomb dropped on him, but he hadn't noticed. This blew my ten-year-old mind. I broke the silence with the obvious question. Why didn't you notice? He said, our camp was in the hills on the outskirts of the city. We were working underground in tunnels, so didn't see anything. We heard something, but didn't think much of it until we noticed the guards becoming agitated about something else. They were running round shouting excitedly at each other, but didn't tell us anything. It was many days before we found out what had happened. After that, he changed the subject. Nobody tried to steer him back to the war. After lunch, Uncle Frank took us out to the barn to proudly show us his new car. It was made by a Japanese company. My mother was surprised. She'd never forgiven the Germans for dropping bombs on her. Frank had suffered much worse at the hands of the Japanese. How could he buy a Japanese car, she asked. He replied, it's reliable and they offer a five-year guarantee. No British firm can match that. I'd be a fool to buy British. Perhaps his engineering background enabled him to think logically about it and overcome any feelings. Perhaps he was just a forgiving person. I don't know. It was a final surprise on a day full of surprises. I never heard Uncle Frank speak about his wartime experiences again. He died just a few years later. Yours sincerely, John Nye in Watford. Our next story is from Claire Meachin. Dear James and Al, love the podcast. One of the 10% here. I thought I'd write to you about my nan, who was one of nine children and was aged 14 when the war broke out in 1939. As a family from Silvertown in East London, right next to the docks, we have a plethora of evacuation and Battle of Britain stories. But I thought I'd write instead about our Dutch connections. In 1947... A large group of Norwegian children were brought to London whilst their parents rebuilt and local families were asked to take them in for a week's holiday. My teenage nan convinced her mother to take two children, but when they went to pick them up, they had all been taken on. No matter, they were told, we have some Dutch children coming next week, you can house them instead. This they duly did, taking in a girl and a boy. We think the girl's name was Anna, but the young lad was Jaap van Stein, known to all of us as Jimmy. Jimmy told us many stories about the war. He used to cycle around the outskirts of Amsterdam as a small boy carrying messages between Dutch resistance groups in his cap. His father, Opa, was a staunch resistance member and was once caught in a forest by the SS. Only he and one other resistor managed to escape, the rest of the group being summarily shot there and then. Jimmy had a very soft spot for the Canadians, as it was they who used to do lots of food drops. He used to collect the sacks from fields. He described one occasion when a bag was dropped and broke open, on a very rainy day, revealing a mound of powdered egg. The group of lads shot in to eat the congealed mess. He said it was the best meal he ever had. He always hated any mention of the Germans. My nan kept in regular contact with Jimmy until her death in 1992. Later, Jimmy's wife, Reet, would also tell us stories. She remembered as a small girl being rounded up with a group of other children and put on a train with no idea where they were being taken or why. The RAF mistakenly took it for a munitions train and bombed it. The boy sitting right next to her was killed. 
1987, I remember a coachload of our family travelling to Leiden in Holland to attend the 40-year anniversary of Jimmy coming to London. And we have a multitude of family photos over the years of our Dutch family. Jimmy died about 10 years ago, but his descendants still keep in touch. Keep up the good work. Claire Meachin. Next up is Mark Dagonais, who writes to us from Canada. Hello, James and Al. I listen to the podcast and enjoy it immensely. Thank you very much for your hard work. The Sunday Family Stories contribution I find particularly poignant, human and meaningful. My maternal grandfather, Harmon Cahill, who lived and worked in Ottawa, had a fascinating job. He was a salesman for the Canadian Pacific Railway Telegraph Services, selling that service to various enterprises, businesses and embassies for 45 years. His responsibilities included attending special events where there were a lot of journalists. He was there to ensure that the news copy of the journalists met each of their respective newspaper deadlines by clearing the lines. So, during royal tours, election tours by train and parliamentary budgets, he was kept close by. This also included him attending both wartime Quebec conferences between Roosevelt Churchill and W.L. Mackenzie King. At one of these conferences, he was at lunch one afternoon and found himself in the company of a rather noted journalist of the time. Uncharacteristically, Harmon asked for his autograph. The journalist obliged, writing it in pencil on the back of a menu. It was none other than William L. Shira. Shira was the American journalist and war correspondent who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. He was famed for his broadcasts from Berlin and he actually moved forward with the German troops describing the Blitzkrieg. As German forces advanced on Paris, Shira was with them. He witnessed the signing of the armistice with the French in 1940, famously recounting, I am but 50 yards from Hitler. I have seen that face many times at the great moments of his life, but today it is a fire with scorn, anger, hate, revenge, triumph. I have Shira's autograph to this day, along with a pocket watch my grandfather also gave me, and a photograph of Charles Lindbergh and the Spirit of St. Louis, taken when he visited Ottawa in 1927. A photograph of the autograph is attached, and I hope you can share that too. Kindest regards, Mark Dagonais, Chelsea, Quebec. Thank you, Mark. And we will, of course, share that photograph on the We Have Ways Twitter page. This family story is from Bruce Mayer, who writes... Greetings from the colonies. I'm loving the family stories segment. It augments an already fascinating podcast. You have an uphill climb in raising the Hollywood version of history, but you're doing a great job. Now that the obligatory praising of the podcast is done, on with the story. This story does not actually come from my family, but rather from a gentleman I met a few years ago. I was at a police graduation ceremony, wearing my number ones with medals, when a woman approached me. She pointed to an elderly gentleman who was about to sing the national anthem and said that he wanted to speak with me when he was done. The man was introduced as World War II veteran of the British 8th Army. When he finished, we both went out into the lobby where we could talk in private. He insisted that we were alone. He asked who I had served with and where my medals had come from. After explaining that I was a lieutenant colonel in an infantry regiment of the Canadian Army Reserve and telling him where I had served, 
he stared at me for a short while. He then introduced himself. For the life of me, and much to my regret, I can't remember what regiment he'd served with. It was one of those fabulously named outfits like King's Own Royal Highland Bowmen. He told me he had landed in Italy during the war, and that quite a few of the men he was with never even made it off the landing craft, having been machine-gunned as they tried to emerge. He made it ashore and fought in land. He choked up a little as he said, Those poor boys never had a chance. They were friends of mine. He then went on to tell me that some time later he was in the line facing the Germans. The field phone line to headquarters had been cut, and his platoon commander ordered him to locate the problem and fix it. He made his way back a short distance and came to a clearing. He had two choices, go the quick way and be exposed to enemy fire, or go around, which would be safer, but take considerably more time and effort. He said to me, I took the shortcut, and I paid the price. When he made his break for it, he was shot and fell to the ground, badly wounded in the arm. He tried to crawl and the Germans began firing like mortars. After a few rounds landed close by, he lay in the field feigning death. He lay there for hours, bleeding, scared and waiting for nightfall. When it got dark, he managed to sneak away and get to the regimental aid post. He was evacuated down the line and put onto a hospital ship. During transport, the ship was torpedoed, but as they were close to shore, most of the men got safely away. He mentioned this almost in passing, like being torpedoed was a minor irritant. Next, he spent two or three months in a hospital recovering, and when sufficiently healed, he was brought in front of an officer. The man said to him, We need experienced men like you at the front. You're heading back. It was at this point that the man paused, and I could see that he was deciding whether or not to continue his story. After some time, he looked me in the eye and said, I told the officer that I couldn't do it, that I couldn't go back, because I just couldn't kill any more. I'm no English major, but I knew in that instant, as clear as a diamond, exactly what he meant. I knew why he'd chosen the word any more as opposed to again or some other word. He hadn't just killed one man, he'd killed many, and it haunted him. The officer told him he'd be going back, but only to teach other men before they went into the line. He was to pass on his knowledge in the hopes of saving some lives. He did this for the remainder of the war, and he told me that he never knew if he had had any impact or not. For what it was worth, I told him that I was certain he had. The ceremony was over, and I walked him out to his car. He thanked me for listening, shook my hand, and we parted ways. The woman who had first spoken to me, who I assume was his daughter, came up to me and thanked me for spending time with him. She asked rather awkwardly what he had talked about. I told her that he had spoken to me about the war. She looked nervous. She paused and then told me that he had never spoken to anybody about his wartime experiences. She asked specifically what he said, and I was about to tell her, but I stopped myself. If he had never told his family any of this, there was a reason for it. He had instead confided in me, a fellow veteran. I lied to the woman and told her that he'd spoken about his regiment, some of his pals and some of the nonsense they'd got up to in training. I didn't tell her anything about his combat experience. After reflecting on the event later that night, I came to believe that he had held on to this for years, but could not bring himself to tell his family. He must also have known that he was getting towards the end of his life. He'd buried this deeply and needed to unload his memories. He saw his opportunity to do so with another serviceman and took it. I feel honoured that he would share this with me, and I'm glad that I was there to listen to his story. Warmest regards and keep up the great work. Lieutenant Colonel Retired, Bruce Mayer, C.D.
Next up, Tyler Anderson writes, Dear We Have Ways, I'm a fairly new listener to the show, but have quickly fallen in love with it. My favourite time to listen is when I'm running, as hearing such remarkable stories allows me to forget whatever my legs may be saying. I'm grateful for the voice that the podcast is giving to the experiences of a now mostly gone generation, and I am hopeful that you might share the following. My dearly beloved grandmother, Anne Florence Bloomfield, was born in London in 1923 into a relatively poor family that lived in the Portobello Road area. It was a large family, comprised of a dozen siblings in total. Several of the brothers were among the evacuated at Dunkirk. Anne was 16 years old during the Blitz, and in later life would recount her terrible experiences, waiting for the thuds of the bombs above to stop while in the crowded, damp, dark shelters below. At some point in 1943, Anne met and fell in love with an American GI from New Orleans, who was to become her first husband. Shortly after that, she became pregnant with my uncle. At some point during the pregnancy, her new husband was deployed to mainland Europe. When the time came to give birth, Anne found herself in a truly unique situation, which I unashamedly share every chance I get. On October the 24th, 1944, Anne entered labour and went to a local hospital. While being attended to by a doctor and nurses, an air raid siren began blaring. The siren was a warning that a doodlebug was imminent, or, put more menacingly, a V-1 rocket would soon be landing in the area. The doctor judged that Anne was far too long in labour to be moved to the shelter beneath the hospital, but not so far along that he had to remain with her. Thus, to her horror, the doctor and the other staff left her in labour pains to go down to the shelter for what she could only describe as an eternity. Very soon after, the hospital staff returned my uncle was born, no doubt due to the stress brought on from the ordeal. Other than being left on the table, Anne had no complaints about the hospital. She had a splendid time recovering in the maternity ward and did everything she could to stay there for as long as she could. For a now archaic reason, they gave her beer. As it turns out, she loved the stuff and gladly accepted the other new mother's daily rations when they were willing to share. Apparently the beer was intended to help with breastfeeding. I can't imagine the National Health Service offers such an amenity anymore. After the war, Anne followed her new husband to New Orleans, with the doodlebug baby in tow. Unfortunately, the husband liked to drink as well and died of liver cancer at a relatively young age. Several years later, now widowed and in her late thirties, Anne decided it was finally time to learn how to drive a car. Her driving instructor had been a truck driver in an American armoured division in the European theatre. As it turns out, that driving instructor was my grandfather. The two of them eloped to Las Vegas and a few years later my father was born. Both pregnancy and birth were a much calmer experience for Anne the second time around. Anne was the strongest woman I've ever known and I often think of her when I feel I'm having a tough time and I quickly snap out of it. I was fortunate to have Anne watch me often as a small child and was even more fortunate that she lived with me and my parents in her final years when I was a teenager. It was during these later years that I grew to truly understand and admire Anne and the events that shaped her life. Anne was always afraid of fire after witnessing fire bombings during the Blitz. The other long-term effect of the war came twice a year with the fireworks on New Year's Eve and the 4th of July. On such occasions, she would quietly excuse herself and go to her room to wait out the bombs, as she would call them. It was heart-wrenching to see my otherwise stoic grandmother visibly upset during these holidays. Despite surviving the Blitz, being the last of a dozen siblings, outliving two husbands, and enjoying wine well into her 80s, Anne eventually succumbed to pneumonia in 2012 
at the nimble age of 88. Best regards, Tyler Anderson, Houston, Texas. The last of our family stories this week is from We Have Ways stalwart Conrad Radders H. He writes, Dear Al and James, Your podcast has been an absolute godsend and motivated me to share my family history with a wider audience through Twitter and Patreon. Thank you for all that you do. This is simply the best podcast ever. I have had an interest in the Second World War from a very early age due to the fact that all my grandparents played a role and had very different experiences. Both grandfathers were in the Polish army. A paternal English grandmother was in the ATS and a maternal Polish grandmother was forced labour in Germany. I also had numerous great-uncles who fought in the Polish Home Army in the forests of eastern Poland, and a great-uncle who was killed at Katyn. Furthermore, on the English side, I had a great-uncle who served with the Lovett Scouts at the end of the war. I also grew up among many Polish émigré veterans in my family's circle of friends. They all shared amazing experiences. Is it any wonder that due to this exposure... I have become one of the afflicted. This interest in the Second World War also inspired me to study military history at university. The family story that I wish to share is about my maternal grandmother, Sabina. She was in her early teens at the outbreak of the war. Sabina lived on a farm in Poland. On several occasions, her father helped hide Jews on the run from the Nazis. Living on a farm, there were many good hiding places to shelter people in need of sanctuary. However, it was a huge risk. One cold evening, in late February 1940, a patrol of SS soldiers arrived at the family farm having followed tracks in the snow from a nearby town. Angered at not finding any suspected hidden Jews, they burnt down the farm. The officer wanted to execute my grandmother, her parents and siblings. However, a sergeant intervened and advised the officer that the family would be best used in serving the Riker slave labour. The family was split up and they took Sabina from her family to work in a slave labour camp in Germany, far away from everyone she loved. Sabina worked for many months in the slave labour camp, digging and moving earth. She spent some time on the Dutch-German border. Once Sabina arrived there, she and many others were made to dig trenches for anti-aircraft emplacements and make equipment for the Nazis. She spent time in a factory producing artificial silk for parachutes in Wuppertal. After having had more than enough of the awful living conditions within the camp, Sabina and some of her friends decided to escape. They boarded a train heading for Hamburg. Their plan almost worked, but they were compromised by a pair of nuns who they'd appealed to in order to help their escape. The nuns reported them to the train guards. Sabina was arrested and tortured by the Gestapo and sent to another slave labour camp. A recollection of my grandmother, which always sticks in my mind, was that in April 1945 she was forced at gunpoint with other prisoners onto a bridge in the Dortmund area. This was to be blown up because the Americans were approaching. Perhaps the Germans wished to use the prisoners as a bargaining chip or as a human shield in order to delay the advancing Americans. Some local people protested to the German commander and in an act of solidarity walked onto the bridge to prevent it from being blown up. The Americans arrived and the Germans surrendered to them, saving the bridge from being blown up at the last moment. Sabina was liberated and handed over by the Americans to the British troops. There were Scottish troops and Celts, she remembers. That caused quite an interest among the girls from her camp. The Scottish troops were very good towards them and helped my grandma as best they could. 
she always held the Scots in high regard. She was very weak from malnutrition. The Scots sent her to a hospital run by Americans which saved her life. She spent six months in the hospital in Germany and then another six months in a Red Cross camp. Sabina was reluctant to return to Poland. She had not heard from her family in several years and presumed they had died in the war. Whilst in the refugee camp, thinking that she had no home to return to, she signed up to travel to America. She waited patiently for the day she would be able to start her new life. Sabina would regularly listen to the announcements from the Red Cross radio played throughout the refugee camp. They often included messages from people searching for their loved ones. One day, by chance, Sabina heard a familiar voice on the radio. Her father. He was asking if anyone had any news of his much-loved daughter, Sabina. He explained that her family had survived the war and that if she was alive, she should return to them in Poland. And that's exactly what she did. She travelled back to Poland by train with other female displaced persons. Sadly, the welcome which several of them received, and from the Soviet soldiers, was something all too common in that part of the world during this period. My grandmother turned 96 this March, and is still fairly active. She still bears the physical marks of Gestapo torture on her feet. Her toes and toenails were badly mangled by electrocution when she was interrogated. However, this deformity never put her off leading an active and healthy life. The twists and turns of her wartime experience have always enthralled me and made me ponder so much. What if the SS sergeant had not intervened? What if that bridge had been blown? What if she had never heard that radio message from her father? Thanks for giving us all the opportunity to share our family stories. Keep up the good work. Best wishes, Radders. And Radders has attached a photo of his grandmother with her friends from the forced labour group. We're going to share this on the We Have Ways Twitter page. She's standing on the extreme left of the photograph. Note the P symbol badge on her jacket, which shows her status in Nazi Germany. That's it for today. If you've got a family story you'd like considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com, making your subject title Family Stories. You can also leave your story on our members' site under the Family Stories tab. Remember, it's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thanks very much for listening. See you all soon.